Welcome back to Read and Succeed. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station, 106.5 FM, WFMPLP, Louisville. Reviewing American sci-fi novelist Frank Herbert's 1965 masterpiece, Dune, today, just in time for the big screen. Rare content from Mr. Herbert himself on the back half. Stay tuned. Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMP LP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive, national, and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. Welcome to episode 15 of Read and Succeed. The holidays are here. and We are getting ready for all the excitement soon to be in theaters, reading and reviewing American sci-fi master Frank Herbert's 1965 epic Dune. We'll follow this up next episode with our Read and Succeed season finale, reviewing A Christmas Carol by English writer Charles Dickens. Dr. Diane Calhoun-French, Vice President of Academic Affairs at Jefferson Community and Technical College, and Dickens Scholar will join us to discuss and cap off our first year of Read and Succeed. Speaking of the giving season, if you've enjoyed the content on Read and Succeed this past year or any of the great programs you hear on Forward Radio, please consider giving the station a tax-deductible gift. Visit Forward Radio forward slash donate to make supporting community radio part of your financial plan for 2021. For a $20 donation, you essentially fund an entire day's worth of broadcasting. And for a $50 donation, you essentially fund one hour per week of broadcasting for an entire year. As I've said before, all community radio is ultimately underwritten by you, the community. Frank Herbert's 1965 sci-fi masterpiece Dune and the still-active media franchise it created is best described in one word, massive. Literally everything about it, the size of the books, the number of the books, the scale of the setting, the scope of Herbert's vision, the scientific, spiritual, philosophical, and political concepts, even the size of some of the characters themselves, all stretch the imagination to new lengths simply to capture them in one creative eye shot. The backstory, written into the fine print of the novel's own fictional appendices, supposedly linking the Dune reality to our own, is itself nearly 14,000 years in length. But close in orbit to Dune's description as massive, and potentially its descriptive binary star, is another word, understandable. Anybody and any reader can understand Dune on the first pass, as well as the internal logic of the entire Dune universe itself. Lastly, and I think most importantly, Dune and all its creative incarnations can best be described by one big old three-letter word. Fun. Dune and Frank Herbert take the heaviest subjects of science fiction's mid-20th century Big Three, the empiricism and empires of Isaac Asimov, the liberal social and environmental commentary of Robert Heinlein, and the physical and metaphysical infinities of Arthur C. Clarke, and package them into a page-turning adventure epic along the lines of J.R.R. Tolkien's 1950s The Lord of the Rings trilogy, and one so fun that it later informed the aesthetic and thematic elements of Herbert's fellow Californian, George Lucas's franchise Star Wars. 
The plot of Dune, without too many spoilers, centers around a young man named Paul Atreides, age 15 at the novel's opening and around 17 at the novel's close, only son and child of Duke Leto Atreides and his concubine the Lady Jessica, and ducal heir to the noble house Atreides that, along with a few other houses, some good, some not so good, some outright evil, helps rule the known universe as a feudal cosmic aristocracy of sorts, where humans are the only sentient beings. All the noble houses continually jockey for political and commercial advantage in a galactic assembly known as the Landsrod, overseen by an emperor selected from one of the three houses of the Landsrod itself, who acts as an ad hoc resolver, or at least manager, of a never-ending stream of feudal intrigues and assassinations. The current emperor is a man named Shaddam IV, cold and courtly, but secure on his throne with a legion of his elite fanatical Praetorian guard, the Sardaukar, bred and trained on the distant prison planet of Seleucus Secundus, and available at a moment's notice. Cracks in Shaddam IV's rule, however, are starting to show. House Atreides, led by Paul's just and benevolent father, Duke Leto, is gaining popularity opposite the villainous House Harkonnen and the Emperor's own vulnerable House Carino. And rumors are emerging in the universe's more esoteric circles of a coming prophet figure who will overthrow the existing power structure and assume total control of the fate of the cosmos for themselves. And these mystics have been watching and waiting for this person for a long time. Nearly 10,000 years before the events that take place in Dune, and per the text of Dune itself, humanity faced its first major cosmic crisis. It developed artificially intelligent, near-sentient machines to act as its slaves, but in humanity's laziness that followed, those same machines nearly enslaved humanity themselves. The cosmically devastating conflict that followed this turn of events was known as the Butlerian Jihad, the results of which were the elimination of all quote-unquote thinking machines and a quasi-religious edict still in effect in Dune's opening chapters. Thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a human mind, a violation of which was universally punishable in the Dune universe by death. With one of the main staples of 20th and 21st century sci-fi, from iRobot to the Matrix, i.e. man versus the machines meant to replace his mind now brilliantly off the table, Herbert centers Dune's narrative squarely on what this reviewer thinks is the main theme of his first novel, and ultimately the Dune franchise itself, man versus his own mind. Nearly every external dialogue in the text, often deliveries of moral and ethical absolutes, is paralleled by inner dialogues hidden from the other characters, but not from the reader, of great uncertainty, insecurity, and often outright emotional anguish. In the physical absence of artificial intelligence available to humanity in the Dune universe, the human mind itself has had to bear the intellectual burden, being forced to stretch itself to its known boundaries of intelligence and intuition, millennia-long labors manifested in three great intellectual and intuitive orders, the logical, borderline supercomputing minds of the Mentats, and above them the mystical prescient orders of the male spacing guild and the female Bene Gesserit sisterhood, both utterly mid-20th century gender binary in nature, Spacing Guild focuses on math and science, the Bene Gesserit on family and community, both mystically advanced to the point of possessing equally gender-binary ancestral memories from within their orders, the Spacing Guild only male memories, the Bene Gesserit only female, and both foreseeing the coming of the said prophet figure who, in a very modern theme reminiscent of the national and global LGBT conversations we hear on the news every night, will be a gender non-binary figure capable of accessing the memories of both male and females, both past and present, and a figure that will be known as the Quetzal's Haderach, translated, one who can be many places at once. All of the above, the Spacing Guild, the Bene Gesserit, the Noble Houses, the Emperor, and even the coming Quetzal's Haderach themselves are also utterly dependent on one thing to make any of this happen, spice. 
The spice melange, an organic cinnamon tasting awareness spectrum narcotic with life and vitality extending properties that underwrites all of humanity's intellectual achievements since the Butlerian Jihad and gives the eyes of its users a strange blue luminosity, can only be found on a remote planet named Arrakis, desert climate from pole to pole, and inhabited by a mysterious Bedouin-like people known as the Fremen, and the equally mysterious and giant Arakian sandworms. Massive 1,500 to 3,500 foot-long territorial creatures that swim through the sands of Arrakis as a whale does water, and worshipped and sometimes rode by the Freeman as a sort of demigod called Shai Halud. More complicated still, the spice melange is created only as an organic byproduct of the sandworm's life cycle from larval to pupil to mature stages, and most complicated of all, spice is hugely, i.e. 100%, addictive. Once ingested, withdrawal means almost certain death, capping off one of the many reasons why humanity has spent the last 10,000 years risking intrigue, Fremen raids, and sandworm attacks, mining the sands of Arrakis in search of the spice. Emperor Shaddam IV's plot is to gift the lucrative, spice-rich, irresistible desert planet of Arrakis, currently ruled by House Harkonnen, to Duke Leto and House Atreides as a new fiefdom, with the full intention of supporting a Harkonnen sneak attack, clandestinely backed by his own Sardaukar soldiers, killing the Duke and driving the remaining Atreides, i.e. Paul, into the Iraqian desert where they will meet almost certain death. Spoiler alert, the plot against Duke Leto does succeed, but not long after Paul and his mother Lady Jessica are set adrift on Arrakis's dune sea, the mysterious Fremen emerge from their caves and recognize Paul in one of their own prophecies, the rise of Maudib, a messiah-like figure who will emerge from outside their ranks and lead them to salvation from the desert. Paul, accepted by the Freeman as their leader, trained by his Bene Gesserit mother, and educated in the Mentat way by his late father, moves against the Harkonnen, the Carino, and even the Emperor himself hunkered down in Arrakis's capital city, and in the process moves himself into the final stages of human consciousness, becoming the Quetzal's Hadarach, and alters the nature of the planet itself by reversing the organic life cycle of the sandworms back to their primary chemical catalyst, water. The story ends as Emperor Shaddam IV resigns his crown, Paul ascends to the throne, the Fremen unleash a new jihad on the known universe, and on Arrakis rain falls for what is assumed the first time ever. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. This next clip is one of maybe two or three known audio interviews with Frank Herbert about the origins of Dune and was recorded at Mr. Herbert's house, complete with clocks and pet bird sounds, in February of 1969 by California State University at Fullerton professor of English, Dr. Willis E. McNally, later author of the 1984 Dune Encyclopedia and one of the driving forces in bringing American sci-fi into the cultural mainstream that it is now. Fascinating conversation right at the end of the golden age of sci-fi when most material, including Dune, was still being serialized in pulp magazines such as Joseph Campbell's Analog, a name that they do mention. Of particular note is the environmental awareness that not only Herbert and McNally possess, but that the U.S. Forest Service by that time was actively using, having graduated from conservation in the John Muir era to full-blown ecological management in the 1950s and 60s and early 70s. Learn more about Cal State and the Cal State Fullerton Pollock Library, where most of Herbert's original manuscripts are located, at library.fullerton.edu, and enjoy this interview. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. This tape recording is being made February 3rd, 1969, in the home of Frank Herbert in Fairfax, California. Frank and his wife, Eva are sitting around, myself, Dr. Willis E. McNally of Cal State English Department in Fullerton, California, sitting around talking about science fiction. And Frank Herbert, as we all know, is the author of Dune and many other science fiction novels. Frank, I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about the origins of Dune. You started a little bit earlier, and you said you could trace the germinal idea. 
Oh, yes. The um, idea came from a, an article. I was going to do an article, which I never did, about the control of sand dunes. What many people don't realize is that the United States has pioneered in this, how to control the flow of sand dunes. And it started up here at Florence, Oregon. There is a pilot project up there of the U.S. Forest Service, which has been so successful that it has been visited and copied by experts related uh, departments from Chile, Israel, India, Pakistan, Great Britain, several other countries. Well, I know I drove along the uh, Oregon coast this summer, and you had mentioned this uh, a year ago that it had begun with this, what was happening along Oregon. And I remember stopping at one fort there right south of the Columbia River. It's a yeah. Uh, Oregon State Park now. That's a, a story. Well, Florence is considerably south of that. South of that. Huh? Yeah. Uh, it's about centrally located on the Oregon coast. Mm -hmm. And it was an area where sand dunes blew across Highway 1, U.S. Yeah. Highway 1, frequently blocking the highway. Mm -hmm. And the uh, Forest Service put in a test station down there to determine how they could control the flow of these sand dunes. And I got fascinated by sand dunes because uh, I'm always fascinated by the idea of something that is either seen in miniature and then can be expanded to the macrocosm, mm -hmm. or which, but for the difference in time, in the flow rate and the entropy rate, is similar to other features which we wouldn't think were similar. Well, like how long ago was this, by the way? Oh, this was in uh, 53. This was considerably... Oh, 15 years ago. Yeah, this was a long time ago. Sand dunes are like waves in a large body of water. They just are slower. People treating them as fluid learn to control them. Fluid mechanics, in other words. That's was fluid mm -hmm. mechanics with sand. Very and the whole idea fascinated me, so I started researching sand dunes. And, of course, from sand dunes, you, it's a logical idea to go into a desert. And the way I accumulate data is I start building file folders. And before long, I saw that I had far too much for an article and far too much for a story, for a short story. So I didn't know really what I had, but I had an enormous amount of data and avenues shooting off at all angles to gather more, and I was following. I can't read the dictionary, you know. I can't go look up a word. I get stopped by everything else on the opposite page. So I started accumulating these file folders, and as a result, I finally saw that I had something enormously interesting going for me about the ecology of deserts. And it was, for a science fiction writer anyway, it was an easy step from that to think, what if I had an entire planet that was a desert? And during my studies of deserts, of course, and previous studies of religions, we all know that many religions began in a desert atmosphere. So I decided to put the two together because I don't think that any one story should have any one thread. I build on a layer technique. And of course, putting in religion and religious ideas with ecological ideas, you can play one against the other. Mm -hmm. Now this is, is, you see, I'm talking about the surface now. That's right. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about the way things are layered. Down Within the novel the itself. That's right, yeah. And the way character is developed mm -hmm. for various reasons in the story. Mm -hmm. This is just the germ of the idea. But that's where it began. It began 15 years ago then. Well, what made you, or at what point did you go from the uh, sand dunes of Oregon and the ecological background there to the decision to utilize, let's say, the Arabian uh, mystique as another counter-notion or uh -huh. counter 
notion working within the novel. Well, of course, in studying sand dunes, you immediately get into uh, not just the Arabian mystique, but the Navajo mystique and the mystique of the uh, Kalahari, yeah, the Kalahari Desert, the uh, black folk of, of the Kalahari, mm -hmm. and how they utilize every drop of water. And you can't just stop with the people who are living in this kind of environment. You have to go on to how the environment works on the people and how they work on their environment. I mean, you could look at this thing on the Oregon coast quite simply if you wanted to and say, yes, the sand was covering the highway and that's bad. So, so we plant certain grasses and that stops the sand from moving and that's good. And that's the end of it. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. the end of it. But if you start going into the mechanics of how the United States Forest Service set up this project and all of the internal politics undoubtedly that were involved, I only know part of them, but yeah. I know enough to know there were quite a few more, then you would, un you would probably have a story there, mm -hmm. a Main Street type of, type of story. Yeah. But I got off on a different kick because of the science fiction angle and the emphasis on ecology. It's been my belief for a long time that a man inflicts himself on his environment, that is, Western man. I think we can see that just looking around us, uh, the uh, simple thing of uh, beer used to be packed in bottles, which eventually disintegrated. Then it was packed in cans, and that had a 50-year half-life. And now it's packed in aluminum cans, and that, you know, lives forever. And we're gradually corrupting our environment as a result of plastic, that kind of thing. Plastic is the thing that we... Do you know, Bev and I were up on the Washington coast last year, and an area unspoiled originally, very primitive area, up the, where the Macaw tribes live and so on. Mm -hmm. And even there, down among the driftwood logs on that primitive beach, that almost unspoiled beach, you frequently, much too frequently, come on these blue, orange, green, white, plastic containers. Purex, ivory soap, they, and they're virtually indestructible. There they are, they float. Well, man is, as you view him, a, a creature who ecologically is a destructive force, a divisive force. Well, we tend to uh, think uh, in Western culture, I'm talking about Western man, yeah. you realize that. We tend to think that we can overcome nature by a mathematical means. We accumulate enough data and we subdue nature. This is a, a one-pointed vision of man, because if you really start looking at, at man, Western man, you'll see that you could cut him right down the middle and he's blind on that backside, you see. This is a point that you made earlier when talking about the death of the planetary ecologist yes. in Dune being a very touching spot, I think you said. It. This, well, of course, was done deliberately for that purpose. Mm -hmm. To turn, it's a turning point of the whole book, but to kind of pivot, you might say. And the very fact that Keynes, who is the Western man, in my original construction of the book, mm -hmm. sees all of these things happening to him as mechanical things, doesn't subtract from the fact that he is still a part of this system because mm -hmm. it is absorbing him. He's lived out of rhythm with it, and he got on the in the trough of the wave and it tumbled on him. And we are polluting our atmosphere, we're polluting our rivers, we're polluting our beaches uh, because we don't understand the principles of ecology, among other things. Well, ecology, as somebody said, uh, and I use this, I don't recall, I'd like to attribute this, but I don't recall where I encountered it. I did read over 200 books in background on this. Somebody said that ecology is the science of understanding consequences. Lovely expression. Yeah, I remember that. And of course, we're each of us individually is the product of everything that has happened to yeah. him. And this happened to me and hit me. And so I used it because as far as I was concerned, 
one of the purposes of this story was to delineate consequences of inflicting yourself upon a planet, upon your environment. So you have a number of forces then that are inflicting themselves upon the planet. You have the Freeman yeah. forces, you have the forces of the House of Atreides, do you pronounce it? Atreides. Atreides. Parenthesis, I'd love to examine with you the possible implications of the House of Atreus in the Greek legend there, end parenthesis. And you have the um, off-planet forces of the Spacers Guild and the entire Imperium also as being forces inflicting themselves on this planet. The name of the game is power, you see. Yeah. As, as it is today. We play the game today with counters called money. And we talk about laws of supply and demand and so on. And, and there is a law of supply and demand as long as you only have one form of exchange. But once you start getting other media of exchange, such as force, then the law of supply and demand gets different beats on it, different rhythms. You see, Western man has assumed that if you have, that all you need for any problem is enough force, power, and that there is no problem which won't submit to this approach, even the problem of our own ignorance. And it is the basic fallacy of Western man's approach to living. We need uh, <laughs> what I would call a science of wisdom. Mm -hmm. I think among the things that we need and this is indicated to a certain extent in the novel, but uh, we need a clear distinction in our minds, in the minds of Western man, between the ethical norm and the moral life. The moral life is subject to change. Uh, it is the law, etc., etc., etc. But the ethical norm are those things which we must do because they are the proper thing to do regardless of the law. They're an abstract. They are an abstract. And this conflict between the moral and the ethical norms we see obtaining in certain situations within Dune, as I recall. Well, the moral, At least I could extrapolate. Yeah, uh, that's correct. Well, the, the moral norm, as I saw it in Dune, was something that is imposed upon people by their environment. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's as fixed as uh, how many wives a man in this culture might be able to support and thereby have, or, mm -hmm. or uh, what possessions he can carry from one stopping place to another, mm -hmm. and how this would control the moral laws that yes. would be built up in society. We see it in our society, for example, out of our nomadic background and uh, herdsman background. Mm -hmm. We see all kinds of moral injunctions which grew up out of that and which we accept today, logically. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to denigrate no. them, but we can trace them this way. Now this is where moral law comes from. Mm -hmm. Ethical law takes a, a step in an, another, another direction, direction. Mm -hmm. and it says that I, the thinking animal, see that the logical consequences of these moral actions are such and so, and maybe I'd better modify the moral law slightly by a higher ethical law. I, I find this then in one of the, uh, in some of the internal conflicts which are bothering Paul, yeah. uh, that uh, the ethical norm which he sees as being an, uh, one of, say, absolute rightness as opposed with a, the law of moral necessity. And these are clashing in him. These are tensions at work within Paul which cause him, I think, to have a depth of characterization that you do not normally find within uh, the normal science fiction novel. You've hit on, the, of course, the way the character of Paul was constructed. It was a conflict between yeah. absolutes and the necessity of the moment. Yeah. And, uh, it's almost an existential necessity, incidentally, as I caught it, as I read it. That's right. That's absolutely right. You see, this is an exercise in 
showing up, you might say, the fallacy of absolutism. Mm -hmm. Even to be absolute about being non-absolute, because Paul is, is bothered with that very problem That's at times. Right. Uh, how absolute can he be, and yet in his relationships with his subordinates, mm -hmm. with Stilgar, for example, yeah. if he's too absolute, he loses, you know, he, he gains a, how did you put it in the novel? He, he saw, he sees the loss of a friend and the gain of a worshiper almost, I do. He loses a friend, friend and gains, gains a, a worshiper. A worshiper, yes. And this kind of conflict, which you, if he's too absolute here and non-absolute there, or when the tribe tries to force upon Paul the apparent necessity for killing Stilgar, and he has to talk the tribe out of one of their tribal rules in order a to... A moral. Kill. Yeah, right. A moral rule. A moral rule. And you see how the moral rule was developed out of the necessities of their yes, background. exactly. And he has given them then an ethical rule. Yes. And yet this conflict is, is continual within Paul, I, I think. And it makes, uh, I think, for certain added dimensions in the novel that, uh, again, the, the normal science fiction novel does not have. Well, you began this then in, in 53, and you began doing research and filling file folders with facts and uh, extrapolating to uh, the, the sand dune planet. Tell me further about the writing process itself. Well, this was the first book where I really started carefully applying these ideas about the building of a rhythm within a story. Would you just define this a little bit more for me? I will. I'll be specific about it. Uh, and I can use a, uh, an analogy which is familiar to both of us, poetry, but it is used only as an analogy. You know how you choose a word in a given poem to control the beat of the poem. The poem then develops a certain fixed rhythm. Mm -hmm. Now, by changing the uh, phraseology, the yeah. placement of words, you can change that rhythm. You can slow it down, mm -hmm. you can speed it up. Well, there is an analogous thing in prose. I think this is quite easily defensible, that length of sentence, number one, modifying clauses, variety of sentence structure, variety, variety of sentence structure, all of these things control the pace of controlled reading or control, uh, controlled uh, uh, silent reading or oral. And I work orally because I think that the language was spoken long before it was written. And I think that unconsciously we still accept it as an oral transmission. This was done deliberately as to control that oral pace by the length of sentence, by the variety of sentence, by the words in the sentence, whether long, convoluted words or short, chopping words. Anglo-Saxon. Anglo-Saxon is against uh, Latin. Latin. Mm -hmm. I control the pace. So I have several rhythms built into the story deliberately. One is a long-term rhythm. And we'll get to the ending of the book in a moment. I, the ending is camp, high camp deliberately, and a, a number of people, interestingly, have seen it. I wanted to say... I found it sheer action, almost for the sake of action. I wanted to turn the story around on itself, but in two very specific ways, and obviously you don't limit if you do the way it turns if you do that, even if you do one way sure. that you know of. One, I was poking a little fun at the idea of the person who always sees things verbally must write about them and record them, you know, the, the, the historicity of anything that happens. You see, you're not living it, you're recording it. I wanted to, to kind of have a little snicker about this, you see, mm -hmm. right at the end, and you detected that sheer action treatment there, mm -hmm. 
and you see how that this does what I'm describing. Yes, because and that is a limited point of view, actually, the sheer action treatment. Yeah, uh -huh. that's right. And also, by making it a man-to-man -man battle at that point between Paul, who is a an extremely complex character, yeah. and this almost stick figure, Black, you see. Who is sort of, in many ways, Paul's counterpart. Exactly. He's mm -hmm. a he's a foil in the classic sense of the word. A foil, foil. in the classic sense yeah. in other places. Right. But at this point, he becomes that that impossible thing, that non-existent thing, the absolute evil. Yeah. You mm -hmm. see, and so we turn the whole thing, whirling backward through the story. Mm -hmm. There was another thing there in the pacing of the story. It was very slow at the beginning. It's a colloidal rhythm all the way through the story. Very slow, paced increasing all the way through and when you get to the ending of it I've chopped it at a uh, at a non-breaking point so that the person reading the story skids out of the story trailing bits of it with him mm -hmm. and uh, on this I know I was successful because people uh, come to me and say uh, they want more and I have said this to my classes that in many ways as satisfying as Dune is I find it unsatisfying because there are so many unanswered questions. You don't tie up the loose ends of, say, Paul's sister or um, several other things. The the whole question of the Spacing Guild yeah. itself and how it got to be the way it was is a uh, is handled very, you know... Well, let's, let's examine something as far as fiction in general is right. concerned. Now, there are other reasons why stories are remembered. And I'm talking about story in the classic sense of the jongleur who goes from castle to castle to earn his meal. Entertainment. The stories that are remembered are the ones that strike sparks from your mind, one way or another. It's like a grinding wheel. They touch you and sparks fly. Whether this be something like the Miller's Tale of Chaucer or uh, Sir Gawain and the Grena Knicht, yes, please. Yes, uh, Or... Um, well, we could adduce thousands of other examples up to, say, Treasure Island or... Now, we all have stories that we go on with after finishing reading them. As children, we can remember playing Treasure Island. Or playing Tom Sawyer. Or Tom Sawyer. Any of these. We remember playing these. The story stayed with us. The characters and their conflicts and their joys, their play, all stayed with us. And it enkindled sparks in our own imagination so that we developed, basic, we, told, we, we were then active in creative play. That's exactly right. We went on and told the story ourselves. Yeah. Now, I deliberately did this in Dune for that purpose. I want the person to go on and construct for himself all of these marvelous flights of fantasy and imagination. Mm -hmm. I want him to, to uh, you see, you, you haven't had the Spacing Guild explained completely, just enough so that you know its existence. Mm -hmm. Now, with lots of people, they've got to complete this. Yes. So they build it up in their own minds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, this is right out of the story, though, you see. Yeah. Or the whole... The sparks uh, have flown. Bene Gesserit, you pronounce it? Bene Gesserit, yeah. Bene Gesserit. The, their whole uh, mystique and uh, so on is uh, relatively unexplained. Why do they want the Kwisatz Haderach in the first place, you see? Is relatively the name common. of the game is power. Yeah. They want power in a specific way. You know, I've always been amazed by the statement, or by the label, psychological warfare. There can be no such thing as psychological warfare. If you develop a psychological weapon 
sufficiently that it is destructive to any potential enemy, it will destroy you with the enemy. It's a two-edged sword without a handle, and if you grab it hard enough to wield it, you're going it's to... It's just self-destructive. Yes. So we could have a, ver a variation on the Lord Acton notion. Power corrupts both the user and the receiver of the power, both, absolutely. Right. Acton saw it. Now the Bene Gesserit see this. Mm -hmm. You see how they keep themselves in the background. Yes, that's true. They want a user of power they can control. I see. With safety to them. That's right. It's a I safety see. device, you see. Uh -huh. And, and I, I say this in, in several ways, not in this way, yeah. not in this blatant you know, way, but implying it with all of its permutations, because there's much more to this. We could go on for several hours discussing this aspect of yeah. it. Yeah, the whole attitude of uh, Reverend Mother Gaius Moyam, uh, yeah. for example, Helen Gaius Moyam. Well, I, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to examine this a little bit further in some of the religious constructs. Before we get into that, okay. let me tell you something. I was up at Sonoma State to talk to a class up there, and the question that seemed to attract the most attention from the class, somebody asked back there, what's all this nonsense about controlling people with voice? There seemed to be a lot of agreement with this point of view that it's impossible to do this. I said, we do it all the time. And it's amazing to me that anybody could even begin to question this as a, as a, an, uh, as a fact of our existence. And they couldn't see it. We're saying that if you know the individual well enough, if you know the subtleties of his strengths and weaknesses, that merely by the way you cast your voice, by the words you select, you can control him. And it's done all the time in politics. And this is one of the techniques, incidentally, that science fiction, I think, does. It takes a possibility or something that does actually exist today and extrapolates from that, perhaps refines it, makes it more specific. The science of control by voice. Yeah. It's a well-recognized uh, thing in semantics, and, and you see it. Hayakawa uses the example of you're talking, you've met somebody. Uh, for the first time, maybe in a business meeting, at a convention, and you get acquainted and you're speaking, you exchange views. At the end of it, you say, uh, we must get together for lunch sometime. Now, under one example of this, the fellow will call you the next week, or you'll call him, and you will get together for lunch. And he knows you're, he's supposed to call you and, and make this luncheon date. Under the other example of this same phrase, he knows that this is goodbye, I don't care to talk to you anymore. But it's the same phrase. Mm -hmm. And they're both polite. They're both polite. Oh, yes. And this is the meta message. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The hidden message underneath the message and yeah, so that's on. Right. I had no trouble understanding that question of the voice as I read the novel because among the other things which the novel gave to me was the whole question of communication and how we communicate on multiple levels, whether it be uh, Paul communicating by shedding a tear, that's an act of communication, mm -hmm. uh, on a very profound level to the Freeman, or the communication of the voice, or the communication by sword, or the communication by a dozen different ways that we all do constantly, as we're doing in this room right now. See, so you're communicating by, in one sense by the way you're both watching me as I speak, and uh, watching Frank, and watching the recorder, and watching what you're doing with your hands. There are all sorts of communications, just as I'm communicating and you are in a dozen, hundreds of hidden different ways. I had no problem with that in the novel, and I thought it was rather well done. 
let me go off on another parenthesis here. Did you ever read the novel uh, Nostromo by Conrad? No. I was reminded very much as I read um, Dune for the first time of the reaction that I had when I first read Nostromo. I think that Nostromo is one of, if probably Conrad's greatest novel, is certainly his most artistic achievement, as well as his most profound. And I found myself thinking about Nostromo as I read, as I read Dune. Now I'm going to have to read it. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I, I mean that as very high praise because mm -hmm. Nostromo is ultimately the creation of an entire universe. It is the country of Costaguana in Central America. There is one thing in Central in this country of Costaguana that influences everybody, and it is the presence of a gigantic silver mine. And the silver corrupts ah. everybody in the country in I... one way or another. <clears throat> mm -hmm. It can corrupts the British people who are running the silver mine. It corrupts the incorruptible Nostromo, our man. Mm -hmm. who is the sort of a folk hero of the thing. Yeah. It corrupts everybody. It totally controls the country. In watching how these people interrelate to the problem of, of a silver mine. Mm -hmm. And the parallels there, you see, between Dune and Nostromo, to me as I read it as a professor of English, were, were very strong. And this is one of the things I object to in, among my own compatriots, is that they are unable to see that something like Nostromo is, in a very real sense, a type of science fiction. We have created a mythical country based upon reality, yeah. uh, where the people react in certain ways to things which we would react to in, in other ways, but it's said over here, just as the freemen react to... Oh yes, it's my contention yeah. that in, um, especially in Dune, and, and Dune is an, uh, an exposition of this point, <laughs> that man himself is going to change we have changed but our changes the the actual basic change is a gradual climb mm -hmm. now i don't see this as progress i see it as a, a sort of entropy and as a a growth of complexity but that this is such a slow process that in thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years, we would still recognize the emotions, the reactions, all of these things. And given any set of forces which you can delineate, mm -hmm. the silver mine, mm -hmm. the geriatric spice, right. the existence of certain hard lines of power control and communication. As perhaps oversimplified by, say, the Harkonnens versus the Atreides yes. families. Yeah. You have a, a classical feudal yeah, system sure. here. It's my contention that feudalism is a natural condition of human beings. Not that it is the only condition, <clears throat> not that it is the right condition, that it is just a way we have of falling into organizations. I like to use the example of the uh, Berlin Museum beavers. You ever come across this? No. Well, my f the numbers are going to be wrong here, but it's on this order. Before World War II, there were a number of families of beaver in the Berlin Museum. They were European beaver. They had been in there, raised in captivity for something on the order of 70 beaver generations in cages. Mm -hmm. 
World War II came along and a bomb freed some of them into the countryside. What did they do? They went out and they started building dams. Tribal organization. Feudalism is tribal organization. And that's what I'm talking about. So tribal organization is a natural organization of humankind. We tend to fall into it, given any chance at all, given the proper stresses or given the proper lack of stresses. And I think we could extrapolate from that notion and say we have many more feudal or tribal aspects in our society than we might have otherwise thought about it. I would think that the existence of the Roman Catholic Church in its feudal state, as long as it has existed, is sort of proof of what you're saying. The hippies are a proof of it. Uh, Look yes. at the organization they set up. It's a tribal organization. Yeah. A business office is feudal. Yeah. No, a company is feudal. Mm -hmm. A university, perhaps? Oh, yes, indeed. An, an English department. <laughs> Very true. Well, of course, what we're doing here is oversimplifying. Yes. The, the complexities of it and the variations on the theme are multitude. But the framework is there. The skeleton is there. And you can recognize that skeleton. So I set up the situation in Dune where the natural evolvement was a classic feudalism. And for a very specific purpose, I wanted the lines of power to be clear. At the same time, feudal lines of power were extremely uh, were extremely complicated. I don't oh, mean yeah. to contradict you, but no, I, I they, understand by, what you're saying. Uh, while they were simple, they were nonetheless uh, multi-leveled, as you indicate with Baron Harkonnen yes. and the Nabaron and, and and so on. All of these things of of the relationship to the Imperium. This. You want to go back to the 14th century in England, to the War of the Roses. No, by clear, in this, I meant in this sense, recognizable by anybody who knows, knows the first right. thing about history. Precisely. The thief uh, is a set of obligations from top to bottom and from bottom to top, mutual yeah. back and forth, ultimately. Yeah, it, it, it's a feedback situation. Exactly. And this kind of, of thing, the kind of loyalty that, say, Gurney Halleck gave Paul, yeah. or gave Paul's father. The loyalty to the family. And yeah. I am the rightful duke of... Atreides. Yes. At the very end of the thing, as he is speaking to the Sardarkar. Yes, the Sardarkar. Mm -hmm. I know my students have had a lot of fun tracing down the background of the Freeman as far back as they can from the hints you drop in the novel, mm -hmm. and coming to the delighted surprise that they were once probably on Seleucus Secundus, and that this accounts for part of the way they are, even the hardening there. and. Further uh, tracing the life cycle of Shia Lud is really an interesting thing for them uh, because you don't quite complete the whole thing in your in the appendices. Because what have I set up there? We know uh, our information about the cyclic nature, the interdependence of yeah. our own environment is still quite sketchy in many areas. But we do know this: we know that you need to create large bodies of sand, dust. Whatnot. Yeah. You need water action, some anyway. And so I've set up multitudes of creatures who substitute for this. Quite logical. Yeah. They do this. And I've postulated that in one vector of their life circle, water is poison to them. We see this uh, sort of thing on planet Earth right now, where a creature can live in one environment, in one vector, but that environment will kill it in another vector. The Anopheles mosquito is a good example. And it doesn't take much of a stretch of the imagination to carry this further in that classic science fiction way, saying that given other circumstances, right. on another planet, 
a creature could develop something that we could see was analogous to this, and but would do these other things. Now, there's another element of Shai Hulud too. Shai Hulud serves a specific function, among other things in the story, but a specific leitmotif function. It's the unthinking beast. It's the black beast. It's the personification of the bull in the arena. Not the way the bull in the arena actually is, but the personification. The mystique of the back. The mystique of it, and it's there it is. The black beast has connotations that I never gave it. Maybe it's my taking it wrong from your terminology. It's the uh, the mythic beast, the, the uh, it's the archetypal beast. Is that the what archetypal you mean? beast? Is that now what you mean the, by black beast? That's right. Now bring this okay. up because of your mention earlier of, of the uh, tracing the archetypal backgrounds, and the, I meant it classically, the archetypal black beast, the one that lives underground in the cavern with the gold. See? Well, this is the dragon of Beowulf who lives in a cave. Yeah, guarding with gold. the golden dagger. Right, precisely. Mm -hmm. That was why yeah. I put this in there. Mm -hmm. It's a familiar theme. And the gold, of course, becomes the geriatric spice. That's in, right. In another yeah. sense. Yeah, and, and I did that deliberately. Sure. The, the value of a good story in the entertainment sense is how much of this it tips off, yeah. how much it starts rolling. Sure. So that you start creating your own story. Sure. The mm -hmm. one that's in all of us, you see. And um, in that sense, there is no right answer to the final, let's say, complete life cycle of Shai yeah, do you want me to pin it down for you? I can. I mean, I had it in mind. You, I had it worked out, too. Let's uh, let's compare notes. Well, I'd be interested, before I say anything, to hear what you have to say. Well, I, I can't quite do it completely without referring to the text, and I'm afraid that uh, most of it is given in the text, but I think that uh, uh, the, the, the question of the sand trout and the... That's uh, right. From the sand trout to, to Little Maker uh -huh. to a... To the, to the worm, to the big one. To the, yes, well, but the, the, it goes through, does Little Maker just go directly into the worm, or is there another? That, no, that's, it goes directly, directly it's into the worm. It's a matter of growth process from growth, there. All right. To, to the, to Shihalud itself, and then Shihalud spice, I think, becomes the eggs. Well, the spice, as I, conceived, the spice or, as I conceived, it was necessary for the development from, let's say, the pupil stage, to go beyond the pupil stage, they, they had to uh, have be in the presence of the spice. Well, that's the way I conceived it. I think the why spice it's so... itself is almost as being spermatic material. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's and right. then exactly the spice right. growing into the, well, ultimately Little Maker. Mm -hmm. The spice in the presence of a dead worm. Yes, who, uh, killed by the water of life. That's then right. this becomes, uh, and you're off in the spice blow. That's right. right. This becomes okay. yeah. the mm -hmm. seed of the new life cycle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I built these things in there yeah. deliberately all the way through it. Yeah. Well, if we can go back then and talk about a little bit more about the uh, formation of the novel from, say, 1953 and the germinal ideas and your file folders and so on. How long a writing process uh, did this take then uh, from the time you this began till the time you... The say, actual finished? physical writing process? Mm -hmm. uh, about two years. About two years. Mm -hmm. You see, we're talking about two different things here. The accumulation of data. Data and the physical writing. And process. the physical right. sitting down in front of the paper and actually putting a story down. Uh, it's almost as though you're filling a container. That has been pretty well built up at that yeah. time. What is your uh, writing schedule? Well, it varies. But as a general rule, it goes like this. I'll get home somewhere around 5 o'clock. Uh, when Bev is here, when she's not working, as she has been the last couple of weeks, she'll have dinner ready at that time very close to that time.
I'll then take an hour's nap and then work sometimes till one o'clock in the morning. Then I hit the sack and get up. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if the story is strong in me, I get up in the morning and write. Get up at five o'clock in the morning or so and, and write for an hour or two sometimes before going down to, to San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, and this is the thing I want to get out of because I can write eight hours a day in two bursts. And I don't see any reason why I shouldn't be doing what I want, writing what I want to write during those times. I don't envision supporting myself entirely by science fiction writing in the sense of writing only science fiction. Mm -hmm. Because I have other access to grind too. Yeah. I'm going to do a, a non-fiction book on air pollution, for example. I'm really hipped on this ecology thing. The consequences of some of the things that we're doing to our planet. And I don't mean in the uh, uh, lock it up and throw it away sense of the uh, classic uh, conservationist. In other words, turn it all into wilderness. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that. But there are ways of living with our planet, not against it. And this is the attitude that we have to develop. And it is an attitude. It's, yeah. it's, it's something that has to be uh, ingrained into us as children. I've found that uh, you were talking about the economics of writing and selling. Dune has made, made us, at this point, about $15,000 since the first sale. This includes the sale of, what was it, something like eight chapters to Campbell? That's right. By the way, uh, I did not read it in, in analog. I read it first in book form. How much of it did appear in... in uh, almost all of it. Almost all of it. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, in one sense, a little more, because there were uh, capsule recapitulations, the synopses. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Did you write those? Yes, I did. Uh -huh. The way it, it comes in, I've found, and this is broad, for a novel, it makes somewhere between five and $7,000 on the in the first 12 months of sale. And this depends on how far you sell it, how many times you sell it. Then I found that with my own work, it'll go on earning for a long time, beautifully in Japan. I understand uh, that uh, you speak Japanese. No. I... Uh, I don't speak Japanese. I can read a bit of ideogram. I was raised with Japanese Americans in the Pacific Northwest, uh -huh. in a, an area where there were a great many of them, yeah. let's, let's put it that way. A place called Fife, between Seattle and Tacoma. And I know a few phrases. Yeah. Well, we were speaking of uh, your writing plans uh, for the future. You say the sequel to Dune will be out this fall sometime? Or earlier. Or earlier. Yeah. I requested, for several reasons, that they publish it earlier. Uh, one of the reasons is that I have built a Dune Tarot into the sequel. And that's hot right now. Yeah. A Dune Tarot? Well... See, I teach Yeats and Elliot and of course. so on. So I'm yeah. very familiar with the Tarot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's my contention that if you immerse a society in a great deal of what we call fortune-telling, you know, mm -hmm. that you cloud the whole process. You see, what happened in yeah. classic times, in, in Greek uh, historic times, when the oracle was, uh, had terrifying accuracy? The Oedipus cycle, for example. Well, there weren't a lot of, of oracles around. You went to Delphi. Delphi, right. Or to the local madman, who uh, might, have, might kill a chicken and look at the entrails. Any one of these methods, which I call ignition principles, as far as... Uh, prediction is concerned. See, I contend that there is such a thing. 
that you can do it. Whether you do it by, um, oh, a subliminal thing, mm -hmm. petite perception, mm -hmm. <coughs> or whether it is a... Uh, you uh, used the petit perception in uh, that scene in the conservatory, incidentally. I thought it was rather well done mm -hmm. uh, with um, Countess Fenring. That's right. Leaving that uh, thing for Lady Jessica to pick up. And parenthesis. Yeah, that's right. That's, <clears throat> well, whether our predictive faculties uh, are prophecy, mm -hmm. um, and we've had our prophets, is a product of uh, uh, an accumulation in the sense of a computer's accumulating data, yeah, or uh, something mystical in the sense that it's unexplained, mm -hmm. thus far unexplained. I'm looking at it through Western eyes now. You should undoubtedly see that, that is that it's a mechanical scientific principle, and if you get enough data to bear on it, you'll understand it. Now, this doesn't necessarily follow, of course, that we can understand everything in the universe. Ask me about the basic, what I think is the basic fallacy in science. You know, I think I think it's the idea that we can invent. Of course, science fiction is based on this: the idea that we, that we can invent anything we imagine. And, having invented it, we must use it. And then live by the consequences of it. Exactly. Yeah. Now this is the Western, see this is the Western fallacy. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the great things about the East, that it does not... Uh, so of course we frown on it yeah. because they achieve their ignition by methods that we can see are hogwash. Right, and or we misinterpret their methods. This ignites a. Uh, you see, you have to have confidence that you can do it. You have to believe you can do it, and believing you can do it, the process is ignited by any one of a million methods. We've experimented with many, mm -hmm. the direction the birds fly, or, or any of this. You see. Well, I had a student a few years ago whose whose wife was so accurate with the tarot deck that. Uh, she stopped using it completely. I must tell you She something. frightened herself. I terrified a gal one time when we, I was about 17. We were uh, sitting in, a, in her aunt's house. And her aunt and an uncle were out of sight but within hearing distance and down in some stacks in the, their library, which was nearby. And we were sitting across them from each other on hassocks the mouth of the fireplace, a big stone fireplace between us, down to embers. And we'd been out on a date, and I'd brought her home. And we didn't have anything going. We, she was just a, a gal I knew. I happened to have had a crush on her younger sister, and, <laughs> and she knew it. <laughs> and uh, uh, unrequited love at 17 is a hideous thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Anyway, uh, that was a, there was a great upsurge of Rhine consciousness at the time, yeah. predicting the cards. Of course, our interpretation of predicting the cards was, you know, we only knew one kind of cards. That was a deck of cards. Sure. So she broke out a brand new deck of cards and shuffled them. We'd been talking about it on the way home. And <clears throat> quite shadowy in the room. There was the firelight, and the, uh, Pat was sitting across the fireplace, and the light from where uh, her aunt and uncle were playing cribbage in the back in there, both of them deaf, by the way, and you could hear this, 15-2 and 2 is 4. <laughs> right, right, right. 
<laughs> coming Pair back of six. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, there was a light from back in there, so she could see the cards. And she said, see if you can predict the cards. She'd been shuffling them, you see. So she picked up the first card. And I closed my eyes, and I saw that card. So I told her, and that was it. She put it down. That was the card. I swear to you, Will, I went through that entire deck predicting every card that she was going to see, and there wasn't a failure at all. I told her every card, and I did it the same way every time. Now, whether I saw a reflection in her eyes, in other words, we go back to yeah. Petit Perception, yeah. or whether this was some actual keyed-in transmission, we were uh, simpatico or mm -hmm. some, something. Uh, Tuned in on her wavelength. Empathy was yeah. uh, rampant in this yeah. atmosphere. Uh, I don't know what it was, but I predicted what the cards were. And I said, my goodness, I said, this is fascinating. Just do it again. Shuffle them again. So she shuffled the deck again and cut them a few times, and we started going through them again. Hmm. And uh, we got down old five or six cards into the deck, and suddenly she threw the whole deck down on the hearth of the fireplace and said, this scares me. I don't want to do this anymore. Dude, have you ever had that kind of success? Uh, never, never again. Hmm. But it was a uh, uh, the odds against being able to do this by... Anything but uh, some unrecognized force. contact or force. Uh, this is possible. That's it for episode 15 of Read Succeed. Get the eggnog ready and join us next episode reading, reviewing, and discussing Charles Dickens' 1843 classic, A Christmas Carol. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening.